Hey man, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You got some information, thoughts, or views that you want the world to hear? When I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other places people like to listen? Man, the big question though was how do I make money from my podcast? The answer to every one of those questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. So best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with a great sponsors too, so you can get paid to podcast. One of the benefits that I really love about doing my podcast with Anchor is the ability to get my podcast on multiple platforms with the click of a button. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast and make money doing it, go to anchor.fm backward slash start. Go to anchor.fm slash start. One more time for the people in the back. Go to anchor.fm slash start to join me in a diverse community of podcasters already using anchor that's anchor.fm slash start i can't wait to hear your podcast till next time what's good family it's your boy big l you guys have tuned into episode number nine of the Page Turners podcast, man. Here at Page Turners with your boy, we will be doing book studies, walkthroughs, um, addressing and dealing with books, 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 books here, books there, books everywhere. Um, One of the things that I have observed over the years, whether it be bookstores, uh, libraries, uh, there is a lack of blackness. Uh, there's a lot of talk about a variety of different subjects, man, but finding black voices is very, very difficult. If you were to even go on Amazon, it's Difficult to find black voices there also. Head over to YouTube, man, and look for uh, book reviews videos or book review channels, and you'll find a ton of them. I mean, they are everywhere over there. I was actually surprised and shocked when I was researching to do the Page Turners podcast. One of the things that I considered was going book reviews where, you know, I find a book, I read a book, and then I give you my thoughts on the book. And that may be something that I will do periodically. Uh, There's several fiction books that I'm reading or have read here lately that I would like to uh, give shout outs to and reviews and my thoughts on. Because, again, 
looking at those channels on YouTube, man, there's an absence of black voices. Uh, I know it's an old trash saying that if you want to hide something from someone black, put it in a book. That's not true within my circle, my family, or my friends. We all are readers, um, avid readers. One of my favorite things to do is when I get together with my family is for us to swap books or talk about the latest thing that we're reading. And, you know, some of our favorite authors um, who are coming out with upcoming books. I do want to plug, uh, not necessarily plug, give a thoughts out. My favorite fiction author is Walter Mosley. I consider Walter Mosley personally the GOAT. Yes, I'll use that phrase. I know it's something that, you know, is often thrown around uh, in regards to sports, whether it's LeBron or MJ, yada, yada, yada. The GOAT thing is very trendy these days. To me, fiction, the GOAT is Walter Mosley. His series with Easy Rollins, uh, if you don't know, if you're not familiar with it, Denzel Washington, also the GOAT. I'm not talking about the greatest African-American or black actor. I'm talking about the greatest actor of all time, Denzel Washington. He played in Devil in a Blue Dress, which was a Walter Mosley um, adaption from his book titled the same thing, Devil in a Blue Dress. Well, that same character, Easy Rollins, it can be found in countless Walter Mosley books, man. And he has several other uh, characters, great, strong, black male characters. Fearless Jones is another one that he writes. Well, anyway, he just put out a new book that escapes me. Uh, as I sit here and talk about it, it is, the title escapes me. But he introduced a new character, and it's a book that I actually gave out to my sister Kia to let her check out, man. Uh, and she's loving the book. And I say all this to say, next month, he's dropping a new book uh, with another character. So I'm really, really excited about that. Uh, I say all that to say it's a good chance, man, in the future you'll see book reviews, man, from your boy, from here, the Page Turners podcast. I'm excited tonight, man, to continue uh, with the book study of Black Theology and Black Power by the late, great Dr. James Cone, who is fairly and aptly titled the father of black liberation theology. Um, this right here, this book will be an introduction for many of you guys, man, uh, into the topic of black theology. I mean, black liberation theology. And it's a good jumping on point. It's a great place to begin getting an understanding of black liberation theology, but let me be clear, this is just the beginning. Do not base the whole theology off of this book that was written in 1969. 
at the height of the Black Power movement. Don't base the whole theology off of this particular text. Dr. Cohn himself explicitly stated that when he wrote this text, he was in the midst of being incredibly angry and confused, angry with the state of Black America, and confused about his place as a Black man in the faith called Christianity. So when you read and you hear the bits and pieces of this book, remember to take those things in context um, to understand and get a very fundamental understanding of the text. Uh, it's very, very, very foundational uh, and a great place to get a beginning understanding. And a lot of the things that you'll hear me say from the book and expound on and exhort on are current places that many of you guys are at now or have been as black folk in the faith called Christianity. It's a great place, man. It's a great place to have conversations. It's a great place to, uh, to see, you know, other greats be in similar positions that you are in currently. Uh, it's very, 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 very critical to take those things in context as you read this book, as you listen to my thoughts on the book. Again, this is episode nine. We are going to begin this text, continue this text in chapter two. Chapter two is titled The Gospel of Jesus, Black People and Black Power. This particular section is titled What is the Gospel of Jesus? Whew. And the text reads, it gets kind of heavy right away, family, so hold on. Christianity begins and ends with the man Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. He is the revelation, the special disclosure of God to man, revealing who God is and what his purpose for man is. In short, Christ is the essence of Christianity. Slymacher was not far wrong when he said that Christianity is essentially distinguished from other faiths by the fact that everything in it is related to the redemption accomplished by Jesus of Nazareth. In contrast to many religions, Christianity revolves around a person without whom its existence ceases to be. For this very reason, Christology has made the point of departure in Karl Barth's church dogmatics. According to Barth, all the theological talk about God, man, church, etc., must inevitably proceed from Jesus Christ, who is the sole criteria for every Christian utterance. That's important. That's key. Because here lately you've had a ton of conversations revolving what pastors have accomplished, what pastors are doing, whether it be uh, leading cult-like uh, congregations or cult-like denominations or meeting and sitting down with the president and having the audacity to 
proclaim that this is the most pro-black president that we've ever had. All that we should be talking about and regarding and dealing with the faith should be centered and focused on Jesus Christ. And the text reads, continues, to talk of God or of man without first talking about Jesus Christ, who is to engage in idle, abstract words which have no relation to the Christian experience of re revelation. Therefore, Barth is best known for his relentless, devastating attack on natural theology, which seeks knowledge of God through reason alone, independent of Jesus Christ. Whether one agrees with Barth or not regarding natural theology, he is at least right about what makes Christianity Christian. With Hart Penenberg puts it this way. All theological statements win their Christian character only through their connection with Jesus. It is precisely Christology that discusses and establishes the justification and the appropriate form of theological reference to Jesus in a methodical way. Therefore, theology can clarify its Christian self-understanding only by a thematic and comprehensive involvement with the Christological problems. Its teachings about Jesus Christ lies at the heart of every Christian theology. You want to know if your theology is accurate? You want to know if your theology is uh, <laughs> right <laughs> or headed in the right direction? Does Jesus lay at the heart of it? And the text reads, As Christians, we know God only as he has been revealed in and through Jesus. All of the talk can and have at most, at most provisional significance. One has only to read the gospel to be convinced of the central importance of Jesus Christ in the Christian faith. According to the New Testament, Jesus is the man for others who views his existence as in, intricately tied to other men to the degree that his own person is inexplicably apart from others. The others, of course, refer to all men, especially the oppressed, the unwanted of society, the sinners. He is God himself coming into the very depths of human existence for the sole purpose of striking off the chains of slavery. Therefore, freeing man from ungodly principles and powers that hinders his relationship with God. Jesus himself defines the nature of his ministry in these terms. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptance of acceptable year of the Lord. That's my favorite Bible verse, Luke 4.18. Luke 4.18. Jesus' work is essentially one of liberation. That's fair. Becoming a slave himself, he opens realities of human existence formerly closed to man. Through an encounter with Jesus, man now knows the full meaning of God's action in history and man's place within it. The Gospel of Mark describes the nature of Jesus' ministry in this manner. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. On the face of it, this message appears not to be too radical to our 20th century ears. 
but this impression stems from our failure and extensively, extensively to bridge the gap between modern man and biblical man. Indeed, the message of the kingdom strikes at the very center of man's desire to define his own existence in the light of his own interests at the price of his brother's enslavement. It means the interruption of new age, an age which has to do with God's action in his history on behalf of man's salvation. It is an age of liberation in which the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. Luke 7.22 This is not pious talk, and one does not need a seminary degree to interpret the message. It is a message about the ghetto and all other injustices done in the name of democracy and religion to further the social, political, and economic interests of the oppressor. In Christ, God enters human affairs and takes sides with the oppressed. Their suffering becomes his. Their despair, divine despair. Through Christ, the poor man is offered freedom now to rebel against that which makes him other than human. And you see the difference here. He doesn't describe the gospel or Jesus as, you know, Christ, the poor man, is offered to come through to make you rich or to make you uh, wealthy or healthy. It's about freedom. It is ironic that America, with its history of injustice to the poor, especially the black man and the Indian, prides itself as being a Christian nation. Is there such an animal? Is it even more ironic that officials within the body of the church have passively and actively participated in these injustices? I'm going to tell you a little sip of my tea on that one. Mm. <laughs> With Jesus, however, the poor were at the heart of his mission. The last shall be first and the first last Matthew 20, 16. This is why he was always kind to traitors, adulterers, and sinners, and why the Samaritan in the parable came out on top. Speaking of Pharisees, the religious elite of his day, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots go into the kingdom, but not you. Matthew 22, 21-31. Jesus had very little toleration for middle or upper class religious snobs whose attitude attempted to usurp the sovereignty of God and destroy the dignity of the poor. The kingdom is for the poor and not the rich because the former has nothing to expect from the world while the latter's entire existence is grounded in his commitment to worldly things. The poor man may expect everything from God, while the rich man may expect nothing because he refuses to free himself from his own pride. It is not that poverty is a precondition for the entrance in the kingdom, but those who recognize their utter dependence on God and wait on him despite the miserable absurdity of life are typically the poor according to Jesus. And the kingdom which the poor may enter is not merely an eschatological longing for escape to a transcendent reality, nor is it an inward serenity which eases unbearable suffering. Rather, 
It is God encountering man in the very depths of his being in the world and releasing him from all human evils like racism, which hold him captive. The repentant man knows that through God's ultimate kingdom be in the future, yet even now it breaks like a ray of light upon the darkness of the oppressed. Mm. When black people begin to hear Jesus' message as a contemporary with the as contemporaries with their life situation, they will quickly recognize what Maltman calls the political hermeneutics of the gospel. Christianity becomes for them a religion of protest against the suffering and affliction of man. One cannot grasp freedom and faith without hearing simultaneously the category categorical imperative. One must serve through bodily serve bodily, social and political obedience, the liberation of the suffering, creation out of real affliction. Consequently, the missionary proclamation of the cross of the resurrected one is not an opium of the people which intoxicates, encapsulates, but the ferment of new freedom. It leads to the awakening of that revolt which in the power of the resurrection follows the categorical imperative to overthrow all conditions in which man is being who labors and is heavy laden. And let me read that one line again. Consequently, the missionary proclamation of the cross of the resurrected one is not an opium of the people which intoxicate and encapsulates but the ferment of new freedom, meaning, man, the gospel with Jesus done and what he proclaimed should not be something that just gets you feeling good here. But it should be ferment, man, of new freedom to fight, to stand, to give, to love, to be gracious. And the text reads, if the gospel of Christ, as Maltman suggests, frees a man to be for those who labor and are heavy laden, then humiliated and abused, then it would seem that for the 20th century American, the message of black power is the message of Christ himself. To be sure, that statement is both politically and religiously dangerous, politically because black power threatens the very structure of the American way of life, theologically because it may appear to overlook Barth's early emphasis on a if yeah, infinite qualitative distinction between God and man. In this regard, we must say that Christ never promised political security, but the opposite. And Karl Barth was mainly concerned with the easy identification of the work of God with the work of the state. But if Luther's statement, we are Christ to the neighbor, is to be taken seriously, and if we can believe the New Testament witness, which proclaims Jesus as resurrected, and thus active even now, then he must be alive in those very men who are struggling in the midst of misery and humiliation. Hmm. If the gospel is a gospel of liberation for the oppressed, then Jesus is where the oppressed are and continues his work of liberation there. Jesus is not safely confined in the first century. He is our contemporary proclaiming release to the captives and rebelling against all those who silently accept the structures of injustice. If he is not in the ghetto, if he is not where men are living at the brink of existence, 
but is rather in the easy life of the suburbs, then the gospel is a lie. The opposite, however, is the case. Christianity is not alien to black power. It is black power. There are secular interpretations which attempt to account for the present black rebellion, as there have been secular interpretations of the Exodus or the life and death of Jesus. But for the Christian, there is only one interpretation. Black rebellion is the manifestation of God himself actively involved in the present day affairs of men for the purpose of liberating a people through his work. Black people now know that there is something more important than life itself. They can afford to be indifferent towards death because life devoid of freedom is not worth living. They can now sing with a sense of triumph. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom over me. And before I be a slave, I be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. Man, Dr. Cone, Dr. Cone. I'm going to continue to read this next section because it's it's just some some yeah, I'm gonna read the next section is entitled We're still in chapter two. Chapter two is the gospel of Jesus, black people and black power. This particular section of this chapter is titled Christ, Black Power, and Freedom. And it reads, An even more radical understanding of the relationship of the gospel to black power is found in the concept of freedom. We have seen that freedom stands at the center of the black man's yearning in America. Freedom now has been and still is the echoing slogan of all civil rights groups. The same concept of freedom is presently expressed among black power advocates by such phrases as self-determination and self-identity. What is this freedom for which blacks have marched, boycotted, picketed, and rebelled in order to achieve? Simply stated, freedom is not doing what I will, but becoming what I should. A man is free when he sees clearly the fulfillment of his being and is thus capable of making the envisioned self a reality. This is black power. They want the grip of white power removed, what black people have in mind when they cry freedom now, now and forever. Is this not why God became man in Jesus Christ so that man might become what he is? Is not this at least a part of what St. Paul had in mind when he said, For freedom, Christ has set us free, Galatians 5.1. As long as man is a slave to another power, he is not free to serve God with the mature responsibility. He is not free to become what he is, human. <laughs> freedom is indeed what distinguishes man from animals and plants. In the case of animals and plants, nature not only appoints the destiny, but it alone carries it out. In the case of man, however, nature provides only the destiny and leaves it to him to carry out. Black power means black people carrying out their own destiny. Black power means black people carrying out their own destiny. And one more time for the people way in the back. Black power means black people carrying out their own destiny. 
it would seem that black power and Christianity have this in common, the liberation of man. If the work of Christ is that of liberating men from alien loyalties, and if racism is, as George Kelsey says, an alien faith, then there must be some correlation between black power and Christianity. For the gospel proclaims that God is with us now and actively fighting the forces which would make man captive. And it is the task of theology and the church to know where God is at work so that we can join him in this fight against evil. In America, we know where the evil is. We know that men are shot and lynched. We know that men are crammed into ghettos. Black power is the power to say no. It is the power of blacks to refuse to cooperate in their own dehumanization. If blacks can trust the message of Christ, if they can take him at his word, this power to say no to white power and domination is derived from him. Looking at the New Testament, the message of the gospel is clear. Christ came into the world in order to destroy the works of Satan. That's 1 John 3 and 8. His whole life was a deliberate offensive against those powers which held man captive. At the beginning of his ministry, there was conflict with Satan in the wilderness. Luke 4, 1 through 13, Mark 1 through 12, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And this conflict continued throughout his ministry. In fact, every exorcism was a binding and despoiling of the evil one. Matthew 3, 27. It was not until Christ's death on the cross that the decisive battle was fought and won by the Son of Man. In that event, the tyranny of Satan in principle came to an end. The good news is that God in Christ has freed us. We no longer be enslaved by alien forces. The battle was fought and won on Good Friday, and the triumph was revealed to men at Easter. Though the decisive battle against evil has been fought and won, the war, however, is not over. Men of the new age know that they are free, but they must never lose sight of the tension between the now and the not yet, which characterizes this present age. 2 Timothy 1.10, Ephesians 1.22, Hebrews 2.8, and, and Hebrews 10.13. The crucial battle has been won already on the cross, but the campaign is not over. There is a constant battle between Christ and Satan, and it is going on now. If we make this, mention, this message contemporaneous with our own life situation, what does Christ's defeat of Satan mean for us? There is no need here to get bogged down with quaint personifications of Satan. Men are controlled by evil powers that would make them slaves. The demonic, the demonic forces of racism are real for a black man. Theologically, Malcolm X was not far wrong when he called the white man the devil. The white structure of this American society, personified in every racist, must be at least part of what the New Testament meant by the demonic forces. According to the New Testament, these powers can get hold of a man's total being and can control his life to such a degree that he is incapable of distinguishing himself from the alien power. This seems to be what has happened to white racism in America it is a part of the spirit of the age, the ethnos of the culture, so embedded in the social, economic, and political structure that white society is incapable of knowing its destructive, destructive nature. There is only one response. Fight it. 
Moreover, it seems to me that it is quite obvious who is actually engaged in the task of liberating black people from the power of the white racists, even at the expense of their lives. They are men who stand unafraid of the structures of white racism. They are men who risk their lives for inner freedom of others. They are men who embody the spirit of black power. And if Christ is present today, actively risking all for freedom of man, he must be acting through the most radical elements of black power. Ironically, and this is what white society also fails to understand, the man who enslaves another enslaves himself. Unrestricted freedom is a form of slavery. To be free to do what I will in relation to another is to be in bondage to the law of at least resistance. This is the bondage of racism. Racism is that bondage in which whites are free to beat, rape, or kill blacks. About 30 years ago, it was quite acceptable to lynch a black man by lynching him from a tree. But today, when whites destroy him by crowding him into ghetto and letting filth and despair put a final touch on death, whites are thus enslaved to their own egos. Therefore, when blacks assert their freedom and self-determination, whites too are liberated. They must now confront the black man as a person. In our analysis of freedom, we should not forget what many existentialists call the burden of freedom. Authentic freedom has nothing to do with rugged individualism of laissez-faire, the right of the businessman to pursue without restraint, the profit motive of the pleasure principle which is extolled by Western capitalistic Democrats. On the contrary, authentic freedom is grounded in the awareness of universal finality of man and the agonizing responsibility of choosing between perplexing alternatives regarding his existence. Therefore, freedom cannot be taken for granted. A life of freedom is not easy or a happy way of life. That is why Satir says man is condemned to freedom. Freedom is not a trivial birthday remembrance. It is not merely an opportunity, but a temptation. Whether or not we agree with existentialist tendency to make man totally autonomous, they are right in their emphasis on the burden of freedom. In the New Testament, the burden of freedom is described in terms of being free from the law. To be free in Christ means that man is stripped of the law as a guarantee of salvation and is placed in a free, mature love relationship with God and man which is man destiny in which Christ is the pioneer. A free, mature love relationship with God and man. I don't want y'all to miss that part. Christian freedom means being a slave for Christ in order to do his will. Again, this is no easy life. It is a life of suffering because the world and Christ are in constant conflict. To be free in Christ is to be against the world. With reference then to freedom in Christ, three assertions with about black power can be made. First, the work of Christ is essentially a liberating work directly toward and by the oppressed. Black power embraces that very task. Second, Christ in liberating the wretched of the earth also liberates those responsible for the wretchedness. The oppressor is also freed of his peculiar, peculiar demons. Black power in shouting yes to black humanness and no to white oppression is exercising demons on both sides of the conflict. Third, the mature freedom is burdensome and risky. 
producing anxiety and conflict for free men and for the brittle structures they challenge. The call for black power is precisely the call to shoulder the burden of the liberty of in Jesus, risking everything to live not as slaves, but as free men. That concludes this particular section in chapter two. Whew. Dr. Cohn dropped some gems in this particular chapter, man. Whew. I'm absolutely loving this book, man. Loving it. Loving it. I heard some great news. Great news. Uh, here soon, there's going to be, it's actually the 50th anniversary, I believe, of this particular book, and they're releasing an anniversary edition. Uh, I am thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly excited about that, man. I hope you guys are enjoying it, man. And I ask you guys oftentimes, man, to, to share this with other people on your social media platforms, man. It doesn't matter what you're on. I, I, you know, I just ask that you would share this good information to create dialogue, to create discussions, to plant seeds, to, to, to show similarities between what was taking place back in 1969 and what is happening today, 2018. And I know that this message, man, the message of black liberation theology is a radical message, a controversial message, and a difficult message for some of you guys to grasp. I can dig it. Hence why you guys will be apprehensive in sharing it with people. I can dig it. I, I, I'm not here to to condemn, belittle you or anybody else about your unwillingness to share it. But I do pray at some point in time that, that you would get to a place of comfort where you're able to share this information because it's some good information, man, worthy for great discussion. Uh, it's a lot to unpack, a lot to chew on. Again, this has been the Page Turners Podcast, Episode 8. Thank you guys for tuning in, man. My name is Elgin Bailey. Till next time.